Hi, this is Rachel on our recovery. We've got a special guest with us, Dr. Anna Salter, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself, and then we're going to ask her some questions. This is Anna Salter. I am a psychologist and author. I've written three academic books and and five uh, mysteries. Uh, I also do a lot of training, and I've been working in the field of sexual abuse for close to 40 years now. Okay. Uh, Dr. Anna is going to answer some of these questions that are written up for her, and uh, she's going to do her best to answer them. Um, Okay, first question is easy. How did you get into this work? Well, the odd thing is that when I was in graduate school in the 70s, I didn't have any courses in sexual abuse. Really, everybody thought it wasn't a problem back then. I was told that incest was one in a million. I never even had a lecture in child sexual abuse or adult sexual assault. Then when I got out of school, I went to work at a a community mental health center. It seemed to me that every second child was sexually abused, physically abused, neglected, or emotionally abused. And I realized I didn't have the skills I needed. So I started trying to adapt the skills that I had in working with children with other kinds of problems and adults. And that worked pretty well until the course started sending sex offenders. And I, I really knew, uh, I believed from the beginning that insight-oriented therapy was not the right approach for sex offenders. So I got a small grant uh, from the state of Vermont I ran around the country looking at programs that had been treating sex offenders. Found one in Seattle, Washington that I thought very well of. They used polygraph and plethysmograph and did not use insight-oriented therapy. I started writing up my report, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And it ended up my first book, Treating Child Sex Offenders and Victims, A Practical Guide. After that, I was kind of stuck, as it were, (laughs) because there were so few books at the time that the book kind of went everywhere, and I ended up training in Europe and in Australia and New Zealand, a bunch of other places, on sex offenders. Um. Can you give us a little bit of history of the psychology and sexual abuse? Well, when I wrote my first book, I looked back to see what sense psychology had made of of sexual abuse. And we all know that Freud got it right the first time. His women, his patients, women patients, reported high levels of sexual abuse. And he gave a talk on it and did not get The talk was not well-received, and he went back and decided that women had made it up, that these were all Oedipal fantasies. So that story is so widely known. I didn't really go into that in the book, but what I discovered that really surprised me was in this country in the last century and a half, sexual abuse has largely been blamed on the victims. Women were considered hysterical and they brought it on themselves. It was described as a form of 
child acting out. Uh, the offenders were portrayed as the victims, and the children were portrayed as offenders. Uh, I've never really been able to make sense of that. I've seen it over and over. I documented. I read paper after paper, which took that point of view. But I can't tell you that I understand it. I, I never have. It seems so uh, ridiculous to me. Uh, but it's only really been in the beginning in the late 70s and 80s that victims were treated in any sense as victims. And even today, victims are frequently attacked as having made up the story to get back at someone or having the story implanted or they're simply confused or they have bad memories, on and on. The attacks still go on. No, I mean, that's a huge issue in our in our country today. Um, what do you find the most surprising in your work with predators? Well, with all kinds of violence offenders, the thing that's most surprising to me is they are not the masterminds people think they are. Uh, sex offenders come in two varieties. There are other taproots, but they're two big ones. And, and one taproot is these are people who are just sexually attracted to children. Uh, they didn't choose it. They discovered it. We think now it's a sexual orientation. Uh, that Those groups, that group, can be uh, very successful in their lives. They can be college presidents or Nobel Prize winners or Olympic coaches, on and on. And they just, what's wrong is they're sexually attracted to kids. They've got what I call a deviant motor. Uh, the other group are those who are antisocial. And they just don't care. They'll use anybody. They, other people are objects to them. Some of them will rape adults and, and molest kids. So I spent a lot of years looking at articles that had 57 <laughs> circles and ovals about the origins of child sexual abuse. I came to the conclusion it's really very simple. It's like a car. There's a motor. In a car, there's a motor and there are brakes. With sex offenders, with those who are sexually attracted to kids, there's a the problem is the motor. It's part of the problem. Now, of course, you can have a normal arousal pattern and still attack a kid for other reasons. Uh, so some of them don't have a deviant motor, but all of them have a failure of brakes. What keeps... The rest of us from acting out sexually in inappropriate ways is fear of consequences, common sense, or moral code, empathy. Uh, I mean, you may think the 16-year-old babysitter is gorgeous. It doesn't mean you're going to attack her on the way home. You may think you may be attracted to your wife's sister. It doesn't mean that you're going to rape her or even come on to her. Uh, we have control, cognitive controls that say to us, I don't think so. Not a good idea. Uh, these guys have a defect in the controls, the brakes, and some of them also have a def defect in the motor. So 
The most surprising thing for me is it's a lot simpler than I think most people think. Um, when dealing with a domino case, such as a three-year-old being sexually abused by a five-year-old or a five-year-old being sexually abused by, abused by a nine-year-old and a nine-year-old being sexually abused by a 13-year-old and a 13-year-old being sexually abused as an adult, what do you th- what's going on in this situation? All are victims, but when do the age of accountability or emotional cap- capability on victims become rep- responsible for their own actions? by adolescence. Uh, These age groups, first of all, this happens less than people think. When we use polygraph backup, the majority of adult sex offenders were not, do not say that they're abused as children. When you don't use a polygraph and you just ask them, two-thirds of them say that they were sexually abused as kids and blame their abusing other people on their own molestation. So you have to remember that sex offenders are not always transparent. Uh, but when little kids act out sexually, they, it's, and they were sexually abused by someone or prematurely sexualized by another kid in some way, they're usually, uh, it, it's like a form of post-traumatic stress remembering, except we have memories and kids engage in play. Now, of course, I'm distinguishing between abuse and sex play between children. When two kids of the same age get involved in exploratory sex play, there may be no abuse involved at all. Uh, you can tell the difference by whether one kid is significantly older, one kid is manipulating. I kind of get into the... Fifty Shades of Grey kind of thing, or is that? Well, show me yours and I'll show you mine, is children exploring their bodies and each other's bodies. Oral sex is a much more adult form of, of sexuality. But the kids who act out sexually are, with some exceptions, uh, generally uh, recreate, if, if it's not normal sex play, if it's oral sex, if it's penetration and so forth, they're usually recreating something, and it is a process of reliving it. But adolescents are older, and they have the capacity for cognitive breaks. Uh, Little kids also don't know that there's anything wrong with the behavior, typically, and adolescents do. So in spite of that, when adolescents act out sexually, it is, uh, it's, it's more serious. And, and I would always put an adolescent in treatment who had either used force with a peer or acted out sexually uh, with a younger child. Nonetheless, most adolescents, the vast majority, who act out sexually as teenagers did not do so as adults. There is a big bulb of all kinds of crime in adolescence, sexual crime, violent crime, property crime, and the vast majority of that crime disappears when they transition to adulthood. Adult sex offenders are a whole different thing. They definitely need treatment, and in many cases, confinement. 
Do you think if caught early enough in adolescence, that can make a difference for some predators? Oh, absolutely. I would definitely recommend treatment at the earliest stage possible. I think we are much more hopeful about our about adolescent offenders. <clears throat> but uh, one of the reasons is that, the, comparatively speaking, there are few fewer adolescents who act out because they are generically attracted to kids, and more of them act out because they are juvenile delinquents, and they're engaging in other kinds of crime as well. And that tends to resolve as they, for the majority of them, as they reach adulthood. So the sexual crime, when it's it's easier to treat when it's not based on a deviant preference for children. Um, what do you think of the story of Lot and his daughters and the way that was written start the history of victim blaming? Well, I think it's definitely victim blame. The victims are blamed for getting their father drunk and having sex with him. However, uh, I have no idea if it's the first episode. I have a cynical suspicion that somewhere on a cave wall there's a depiction of sexual assault in which the child is the aggressor. It's, it seems to be a very old form of misogyny. So I don't know that it's the first instance, but it's definitely an instance. Okay. Um, how does situation of cult or incest situation differ from sexual abuse from a teacher or someone outside of the family for a predator? Well, for the victim, I think incest is is probably the most devastating form of abuse. If you're abused by someone outside the home, you can go home. You have safety. They don't have 24-hour-a-day access to you. If you are betrayed by a family member, they do tend to have much more access to you over a longer period of time. Uh, in terms of offenders, what the research shows is that the majority of them are probably not generically aroused by children. About half of them are also molesting outside the home, and that's the group that's more likely to have a de deviant preference. But many incest offenders offend not because they have a generic attraction to five-year-olds, but because they feel entitled. As one offender said to me, my home is my castle. I'll do what I goddamn well please. Uh, I've had offenders say, uh, this was actually a female offender, say I brought them into this world and I can take them out of it. And she did beat her preschool children unconscious. Uh, regularly. So it's entitlement. Sometimes it's revenge against the spouse. She had, she had an affair, so I got back at her by molesting her daughter or our daughter. It doesn't make a lot of sense to most of us, but that's a, actually a very frequent thing for offenders to say. So it may be revenge. Uh, it may be pouting. You won't have sex with me. If you'd had sex with me, I wouldn't have had to have sex with Susie. Uh, there are a lot of other motivations that are involved in incest than there are typically in out-of-home offending. Um, 
since there is pedophilia in the genetic component, is there all is that also a part of incest for those who act upon their pedophilia inside of their families? What the research is showing that an attraction to kids appears to have a genetic basis in some cases, or at least congenital. In other words, you're born with it. You don't have to be abused or whatever. You just when you're 11 to 13 and you get interested in sex, you're thinking about little kids and not necessarily peers or older adults. But as I said, many incest offenders molest for other reasons, entitlement, power and control, uh, revenge, and we don't, there's no research I'm aware of that suggests that those offenders, that that type of offending has a genetic basis. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit of difference between pedophilia and just a sexual abuser? I think we've pretty much hit that, but if there's anything else you'd like to add. Yes, there, there is really. A lot of people equate pedophilia with, say, child molesting. And the, the truth is, pedophilia just means that you're sexually attracted to children. It doesn't mean that you act on it. So there are very likely people out there... Uh, is, who are sexually attracted to kids who don't act on it because they're horrified by it. Uh, and there are also molesters who molest kids who are not generically attracted to that particular age group. There's a lot of overlap, of course. It's like a Venn diagram. There are some pedophiles who don't offend, a lot of pedophiles who do offend, and then there are child molesters who aren't pedophiles, but they still offend. And this is important because, for example, in the Woody Allen case, one of the defenses for Allen was, well, no other children have come forward, so he didn't molest his daughter, Dylan. Well, he may not be a pedophile, and he may still have molested. In fact, I think the evidence is pretty compelling that he did molest his daughter, Dylan, it may not have come from a generic attraction to kids. It may have come from dynamics of wanting to get back at Mia Farrow or some other, uh, some other reason, his obsession with Dylan from the time she was born, whatever. But we need to make a distinction between being attracted to children and acting on it. Fair enough. Um, can you tell us a little bit about sadists? You mentioned those and... That's, you know, a whole different level, I feel like. It is a whole different level. Most sadists attack adults. Sadists are people who are sexually aroused by pain, suffering, terror, and humiliation. I think if most of us saw a child or an adult being tortured, uh, we would throw up. I mean, it's, it's a nightmarish thought to even see something like that. For these guys, they get a high that they tell me is better than crack, better than cocaine. I've, ha- I've had people say that more than once. They get a, even those who can also get, uh, ej- can ejaculate to consensual sex, would tell me that the high is greater and the, f- the thrill is greater and it lasts longer 
when they are hurting or controlling so, someone or torturing or making them suffer. Does that kind of get into the Fifty Shades of Grey kind of thing, or is that... People do ask, what's the difference in people who join S&M clubs and people who abduct strangers? The difference is probably the level of psychopathy. In other words, how much of a conscience they have. We do have people who are turned on by pain, and inflicting pain. I don't personally think that's healthy, but there are people who are turned on by it, but they have enough of a conscience that they only engage in that behavior with people who agree to it, and they uh, they have a you know safe word that the person says when they stop the activities. They're not going to jump out of a bush at anybody because they're they have too much of a conscience. And when you get, for example, sadistic killers, they are almost inevitably psychopaths and sadists. They don't have a conscience. Okay. Uh, speaking of so- sociopaths, can you tell us a little bit about those? Well, we don't use the term sociopaths so much anymore because people used it in two different ways. Some people used it to refer to people who are antisocial. They may be in a gang. Uh, They may have loyalty to the gang or to their relatives or to somebody, but not to the larger society. They didn't buy into the social contract. So they'll rob and mug and whatever, you and I, but they have the capacity for loyalty. Other people used it to mean psychopaths, people who don't have any loyalty to anyone. They, these are the people, they, these are always the people who snitch in prison, it, are the actual uh, psychopaths. So I usually refer, I usually call them psychopaths so people are clear what I'm saying. And they are, uh, that definitely has a genetic uh, component. And their brains seem to work differently from other people's brains in a, in a variety of ways. They don't have a conscience. Now, they're not, it's still different from being a sadist because a psychopath does whatever they want, but they may not have any interest in torturing anyone. They may be check forgers. They, they may be uh, somebody who, uh, who sets up a, a Ponte scheme for stocks they just don't care who they hurt but it's in the service of what they get of what they want whatever it is whether it's rape or whether it's money or uh or whether it's the thrill of fooling people uh sadists do the point for sadist is the hurting that um that's the point and so the, the two groups are different, but you don't really want to run into either one of them if you can help it. Fair enough. Um, we've got a few more questions. Let's try to get them through them pretty quickly. Uh, those who have trauma bonds with their abuse and have wanted to repair their relationships with their abuse, have you ever seen a healthy repair within a family? Yes, I really have, but it's rare. I had, for example, an offender who molested his 12-year-old daughter, and he kept 
leaving the, he kept moving out the house and he would say to his wife, I, um, I, you don't understand, I can't stay here. I just can't stay here, you, you don't understand. Uh, and he uh, moved back in, uh, he went into treatment, he cooperated with treatment and one of the things we did, oh my gosh, one of the things we did was identify a, a mood he gets in before he abuses of isolation and feeling sorry for himself and things like that. And his wife would call and say, he's in that mood again, I'm bringing him in. Uh, it, and I, I saw another guy who molested his grandchildren and, and didn't, he actually, he didn't even get an attorney. He said to the judge, I hope you send me to prison. Maybe I can make up in some small way for what I've done. So, uh, but, it, but frankly, it is rare. Uh, it, in general, people think way too much, not way too much. They only think about whether the offender is going to reoffend. What they don't realize is for many victims, they're never going to not be afraid if he's in the house. Yeah. So it's re-traumatizing for many victims, and their mental health suffers. That's a separate issue from whether he's going to reoffend. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, when you're trauma-bonded, I mean, I'm, I'm a prime example of this. I mean, I was sexually abused by my dad, and, uh, I mean, I was very much bonded to him. He was the guy who protected me from my mom because she was a borderline, and borderline rage is real and it can be very devastating for a child and you know he in a lot of ways was my protector from all of that yeah I really I didn't address the trauma bomb part it is true that many children are put in situations where the offender actually offers more protection than the non-offending parent I mean that was in the case of the woman who would beat her children unconscious, I mean, she let men come in the house and offend them. They were inevitably kinder to the children than than she actually was. Uh, and this, the trauma bond issue is important. It's really important because judges will will use it sometimes. Well, she wants to see her father. She wants to go back with her father. Uh, as an indication that the guy isn't risky. And that's a totally different issue uh, because he has got a, he's twisted this child into caring about him, and children are open-hearted, and they're, frankly, easy to manipulate. Doesn't mean that he is any less guilty. So I wish judges knew more about the concept of trauma uh, bonding than they do. Some offenders, even in situations where the non-offending spouse is not abusive, some offender, offenders are very good at, at getting kids to love and to trust them. That's their entire operation. That's how they, that's how they get access to kids. And because they're successful in that, we should understand that they're more risky, not less risky. Yeah, no, I can 
see that. What do you find the most difficult when dealing with the rose collar colored glasses society? Yeah, I wrote a chapter in my book about rose colored glasses and people have all these sayings to make themselves feel safe. Uh, you know, everything turns out for the best. I have a guardian angel. Uh, people are very trusting. Uh, and it, the odd thing is, I wrote a chapter on sadist. I wrote a chapter on what I called rose-colored glasses. I thought everybody would be upset about the chapter on sadist. Because, frankly, it's a horrible chapter in terms of the descriptions of what some of these people do. And I never got any complaints about it. But I had hate mail over the chapter on rose-colored glasses. You just want us to go around being depressed. One person in the field I sent it to said, I would never recommend your book to anybody. She said, because I have a neighbor who, I have a neighbor who doesn't lock their doors. She says, if I don't lock my doors, they may rob me one day. But if I lock my door, they rob me every day. I'm usually pretty calm about responding to emails, but I, that really annoyed the heck out of me. And I wrote her back and said, if we were just talking about a VCR, you might have a point. But we're talking about the health and safety of our children, and we can't afford your kind of denial. Um, and I believe that. I believe that uh, parents have to be aware that teachers, coaches, uh, that there's just a tremendous amount of sexual abuse in society. And I, I end that book by talking about the fact that when my kids were little, I was the parent on the sidelines with the lounger and the baseball cap. You know, I was at the practices. I, I learned to score baseball so I'd have an excuse for hanging around the team. I was the team manager, or whatever role parents got, in so many activities that when my son was a senior and the baseball coach asked the team for a recommendation for which parent would do it, five kids raised their hands and recommended me <laughs> instead of their own parents. It, but I felt those were the risky situations. And parents just assumed that they can drop their kids off with, at practice. Uh, nothing's going to happen. I don't. People are too trusting. Yeah. No, you're completely right about that. Um, what do you do for self care? Because all of this has to be emotionally taxing. Um, I live in the mountains at ninety three hundred feet. I take pictures of bears when I can find them. Actually, several have showed up on my deck, so they weren't too hard to find. I do wildlife photography. I wrote the mysteries uh, just because the good guys always win. Uh, one speaker I heard said her advice for people in the field about having a, about a personal life was have one. Uh, this is not I do this work, but this is not my whole life. 
I ride, I take pictures, I hike an hour and a half to two hours a day, I ride horses. This is what I do. But I try not to get sucked into the world, the whirlpool. Uh, and I have to have that balance. Uh, last question. How, how has doing this work impacted your faith? Faith? Yes. Yes. I don't have any. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I, uh, I believe, uh, I guess the faith that's the closest for me is Buddhism because they speak of compassion and kindness. I've just been an expert witness in too many Catholic Church cases, uh, Protestant Church cases. I've got a Jehovah's Witness case right now. Yeah, you may not know, or you may, that in the Jehovah's Witnesses, there have to be two witnesses, or someone is not believed. So if the it's open season on children, as long as the perpetrator doesn't confess, he has to confess, or someone else has to see it, or the child is not believed. So as far as organized religion goes, I, I'm sorry. I'm just not a fan. I've seen too many abuses in all of the major religions. I completely understand that. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. And maybe we can interview another time, at another day about something else related to this. Orson, thank you for your work. I think it's really important. And I, I always admire people who turned trauma into, uh, into something that helps other people. So uh, work like the work you're doing is very, very much appreciated. Thank you. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Tune in next Thursday. And um, as always, you can follow us on social media and listen to us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks. Thanks.